Recently, I, uh, I visited my oldest son uh, back in Washington, D.C., and uh, we went to some uh, museums. And uh, we, at one museum, there was an exhibit on, uh, on, the, on gemstones, precious gemstones. It was an incredible exhibit, and I saw these diamonds and sapphires and emeralds like I've never seen. They were incredible. But what struck me as I was thinking about them was how they were valued, not so much by their size, although that's part of it, but by their clarity. Uh, the, the, the ones that were foggy and a bit milky, not so valuable, but the ones that were just really clear and every facet you could see were extremely valuable. As human beings, we, we love clarity. Inherently, we value clarity. We'll pay for it. Think about that. We, we do that in just about every area of life. You think about, uh, you know, entertainment and sound systems. We've moved from mono radio to stereo to quadraphonics to digital surround sound. We like crystal clear sound, no static. We'll pay for it. Television and movies, we've gone from black and white to color to technicolor to high definition to 1080p to 4K and beyond. You stand in Best Buy and it looks like you could step into the TVs. It's incredible. We love it. We like clarity when it comes to communication, right? We like our politicians to be clear. We don't like the double talk and the what's the meaning of is and we want to know. We want to be clear. Preachers, we want them clear. A mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew, they say. We want them to be clear. And it's the same way when it comes to religion and spirituality, the things of God. We want clarity. My friend wrote a book called If I Were God, I'd Make Myself Clearer. Everybody wants clarity when it comes to spiritual things. Is there a God? How can I find him? Is he good? That's what all the religions and all the religious activity in the world is about, seeking spiritual clarity. It's interesting, only 2.5% of the population in the world claim to be atheist. The problem is not that people don't believe in God, it's just that they're confused about him. They have no clarity. And the experts say, you can't have it. Right? I mean, God is just out there. He's transcendent. He's some type of mystical force, apparently. In the abstract realm of the spiritual, which is by definition foggy and unclear, so all you can do is speculate. But you can't really know. Just lots of opinions. And even if they contradict, right, they're all kind of true or not true. And it's extremely frustrating. People, when it comes to spirituality and God, want some clarity. And that is what Christmas is actually about. Did you realize that? Christmas brings or brought spiritual clarity to our world. The birth of Jesus, that original event, cut through all the religious fog and brought three facets of spiritual clarity to us. And the first facet of clarity is simply God 
himself, his existence, his nature. We see this as the Gospel of John here opens. You see the opening section here is a prologue to to the whole book, and and it sort of functions like the beginning of, of Star Wars, if you can remember that movie, if you've seen the rerun, the video. Do you remember the start, the black space and the words coming across the horizon of space? And it was that summary of the whole universe and everything that had happened until that moment. That's what these first verses are about. Let's read them again. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, imagine them coming across the horizon of space. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, it's this cosmic overview, summarizing kind of eternity. God's creative work, his very character. And the whole thing at this point seems pretty esoteric and and distant. God is the word, the logos, the logic of the universe. He's the light. He's the life, he says. It seems vague and distant, like a great force. This is uh, great material for the Greek philosophers. Music to the pluralistic ear, the mystic's playground. It's foggy, but it changes in an instant when you get to verse 6. The most amazing thing happens. Just look at it. Suddenly it says, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's like the camera way out in the universe comes zooming in from outer space through the galaxies down to earth and then it zooms right through the atmosphere onto a continent and zeroes in on one man. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This man is making an announcement from God that the light of the universe himself is coming into the world. He's coming to earth. He's coming to us. And then we get to verse 14, and the word, that great logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God's Son, Jesus, has come from the Father and entered in and become one of us. He's taken on flesh and blood. That baby in the manger at the center of the nativity is God himself revealed to us. It says that Jesus, that baby, is the very glory of God. That is his very essence that he's showing us God. Not just because when he came as a baby, he kind of, you know, like a meteor hit and he kind of glowed and there was a halo over him. That's not what it's saying. Not that glory. But as he grew, when he lived, he, he demonstrated divinity. He demonstrated God to us 
with his very life. First, we saw, when we, when we read through the Gospels, we see it in, in his words. He speaks these, these words that have amazing power. I love it in the, in the beginning of the, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus shows up in chapter 2. And the first thing he does, this is the first miracle people don't think about, is he sees some fishermen and he says to them, follow me. And do you know what they do? They follow him. They drop their nets, they leave their livelihoods, and they follow him the rest of their lives because his words are so powerful. They know they must. Does the same thing with a tax collector. Guy's got his business on the side of the road. He says, you, follow me. And he does. He leaves all of that behind, and he follows Jesus. And Jesus, right after that entrance, it tells us that he goes into a synagogue that's what it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 29. And he came and he went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, not teaching from authorities, as one who had it. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come down to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Why do they obey? Because he's speaking as God. That's who the demons obey. And then his words are matched by incredible authoritative divine actions. He starts healing the sick. He starts touching lepers, and instead of the lepers becoming unclean, Uh, Him becoming unclean, the lepers are clean. He commands fevers to go away. And think about that. The cells of people's bodies obey him. He tells a paralytic who's been paralyzed his whole life to get up. And he does. And he picks up his mat and it says the people are astonished. He tells a man with a crippled arm to stretch it out, which by definition he can't do. But as he responds to Jesus, he literally stretches out his arm and it's restored in the process. It's made whole right in front of their eyes and the people are amazed. These aren't backroom parlor tricks. They're not unverifiable like he healed your stomach ache or your headache. These are limb-altering, life-changing, flat-out miracles, God stuff. Jesus even commands nature. You know the story in Mark 4 where he's on a boat with his disciples and there's a great storm and they're terrified. They think they're going to die. And they want Jesus to do something. He does. He stands up and he says to the waters, to the whole storm, be still. It goes perfectly still. Sun is shining. And his disciples are now even more terrified. Why? Because that's God stuff. Jesus even had command over death. He said to a little girl who had passed away, 
Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise, and she arose. He walked into the middle of a funeral procession and went over to the coffin and raised the boy up out of the, from death. And he even had command over his own death. We know that he rose from the grave. That's clarity, right? That's God revealed in the flesh. Think about how solid and reliable that kind of clarity is. First of all, it's historical. It happened in, in space and time. And there were hundreds of witnesses that verified it. Remember, this is a time of, of small towns and villages. If a, 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 if a local cripple was healed, this was somebody they knew. This was somebody they passed by at the market every day as he sat there and begged. People would be like, hey, did you hear about Bob's son, the cripple guy? He was there every day. He's been healed. Jesus did it. Go see him. He's walking around. The miracles of Jesus were witnessed in real time by real people, even his, him after his resurrection by over 500. And it was all written down and recorded as history for us. This is what the Gospels are. It's funny, you know, Luke tells us at the beginning of his Gospel, he's writing down, he's writing this account, he's talking to witnesses that we may know for certain John says towards the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, there is nothing vague or mystical about God being revealed in Jesus. It's verifiable historical reality. That's clarity. That's clarity you can dig into. That's clarity you can investigate. You can engage your, your brain with. And I want to say, this is very different than every other religion in the world. Every other religion and its claims about God and truth are based in visions and dreams, not in historical reality. Think about that. I want to borrow an illustration about the significance of that from a guy named John Dixon. It's in his little book, If I Were God, I'd Make Myself Clear. Good book. He says, imagine your friend came to you and told you that he had a vision. And in this vision, his dead great-great-grandmother came to him and gave him spiritual enlightenment. She told him about the afterlife in detail. She told him what dietary restrictions he should follow to please God. She told him uh, the works that he needed to do. She taught him special prayers. And all of this was a means through which he, he could attain, attain spiritual enlightenment. And he wrote it all down in a little book. And he's presenting it to you as the true way to God, to spiritual enlightenment. And now imagine, while you're considering what he said to you, a second friend comes a few days later and tells you he had a dream the night before, and his great-great-great-grandmother had come to him. 
and explained to him the true way of enlightenment, the path to God, and he wrote it down and presented it to you, and it involved no prayers at all, but rather special mantras, contradictory dietary laws and rules than what your other friend said, and absolute dedication to this way was to be the only way. Now you have a problem, don't you? You have some strange friends, first of all. But secondly, you have to figure out who's telling the truth. How do you know? How can you figure it out? Well, you can't. Because their claims are based in their dreams and their visions. Right? They're completely unverifiable. These things were only perceptible to them. You can't interview the eyewitnesses. You can't read other people's accounts of what went on. The very nature of their revelation is completely unverifiable. It wasn't in space and time. It was only in their head. You may as well turn off your brain and just give it a guess. This is the nature of all other religions. Islam is based in the visions of Muhammad, which were compiled in the Quran. Buddhism comes out of the enlightenment that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, received after seven years of ascetic denial and contemplation. Mormonism comes out of the angelic visions of Joseph Smith in the woods of upper state New York. Native American spirituality is all about visions. Even the aboriginals of, of Australia talk about their dream time, where they got their truth from. This is the way they all work. Hinduism, Sikhism, Baha'ism, Shintoism, they're all completely unverifiable. No wonder people think spirituality and religion is just esoteric and vague, mystical stuff with no clarity. Basically a blind leap in the dark because all false religions are. But John, and the other gospel writers are recounting history. The events of Jesus' birth, life, and teaching, and death, and resurrection happened in space and time so we can really know, so we can be clear. A British uh, friend of mine tells how uh, he was witnessing to a friend of his, and he said to him, what would it take for you to believe in God? And the friend said, well, I guess God would just have to show up and reveal himself and do God stuff to prove himself. And he said, oh, well, what if somebody killed him? And he replied before he even thought about, well, I guess he would just have to show that he was more powerful than death and prove he was God. That is the gift of Christmas. That kind of clarity. Jesus coming in real space and time and doing the things that only God could do and then conquering death itself. It doesn't get any clearer. And note that this clarity, it's not just that Jesus is indeed God and so we know that God exists, but we know that God is good through Jesus, that he loves us. That he's a healer who's come to restore and rescue and bring life. That's what all his miracles demonstrated. What a gift. What a blessing, Christians. 
The fog is lifted. The uncertainty is gone. Our God has come to us, lived with us, died for us to bring us life. Now, you may be thinking, well, if this is true, if it's so clear, why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus and know God? Obviously, many people still aren't clear and don't believe. That's a good question. And I think the answer has to do with the second facet of clarity that we see in this Christmas text, and that is clarity about us. Not only is the nature and reality of God exposed and made clear in John and the other Gospels, but we are, we are exposed as well. Our very nature is made clear. Look at verse 5 of our text. So we get the first hint at it. It says, The light, this light that has come in God and Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a darkness that, that wants to overcome it. There is a resistance to the clarity of the light of Jesus, this darkness that's trying to fight it. And what is it? Look at verse 9 with me. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, the darkness is, is us. The darkness is in us that resistance to Jesus that denies the light. We all like to think that we're just kind of open books, right? Blank slates, ready to receive any enlightenment that God might send our way. I'm just ready for it. I'm just this honest, sincere seeker. But that's not true. Scriptures tell us we actually prefer the darkness. Why? Why would we prefer the darkness? Resist the light. Turn over a page to chapter 3 of John, where the light comes up again. Chapter 3, verse 19. Here's the final judgment about the light and darkness. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, the Bible tells us, God tells us, our lack of understanding, our lack of clarity, our darkness, our lack of belief is in us because our deeds are evil. Which is the Bible's way of speaking about how we've rejected God, that we've sinned against him who said to God you're not in charge I'm in charge and so we're under his judgment we're guilty in our sin and we don't want to be exposed we don't want to face who we are and bow before our God you see we are in the dark with no clarity because the darkness is in us and we prefer it This is why even in Jesus' day, 
When you read through the Gospels, there were many people who watched him do these divine miracles firsthand and even saw him conquer death and still rejected him. Even the religious leaders were the first ones. Three days after Jesus did all these miracles, they decided to put him to death. They had all the clarity God revealed before them, but that clarity meant a responsibility to receive him as their God and live accordingly. And their dark hearts wanted none of it. The Bible says that's, that's every one of us. That's our nature. I lived in Australia for a while with my family during seminary. And if you know anything about Australia, you know that there's every like deadly bug in the world and creature there. And they also have, very tropical climate, lots of cockroaches, which completely freaked my wife out. We had a three-story little terrace house, and she would mop her way all the way up the stairs into bed to keep the floors clean so the cockroaches wouldn't come. But I had this little game that I played sometimes at night. I would go down the stairs, you know, because I was going to get something to eat late at night or something, and I knew that when I got to the kitchen, I would flip on the light, and I would try to stomp as many cockroaches as I could before they all disappeared into the crevices. That's us. <laughs> Little sinners scattering from the light, fearing exposure, fearing judgment, being stomped, I guess, retreating into the dark where we prefer. Now that's a hard clarity. God revealed himself to us in Jesus as his restoring, loving king, and we rejected him in the darkness of our sin. And it brings me to the last facet of Christmas clarity, which is salvation. Christmas made clear who God is, our ruler, restorer, come to us. It makes clear who we are, rejecter, sinners in darkness. And it makes clear the way of salvation. See, the angels at Jesus' birth proclaimed, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and John describes him here not just as the logos and the light and the life. But when we get to verse 29 of chapter 1, as Jesus is now grown up and he's heading out in his ministry, this is what John says when he sees him come. The next day, verse 29, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was born, he became flesh, not just to show us God's character and expose our sinfulness, but ultimately to be our Savior, to reach out to us in the darkness, in our darkness, to overcome the darkness. You remember verse 5, I love it, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, because Jesus was born to be our sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, the people of God would sacrifice a lamb once a year as, as kind of a temporary way of trying to deal with their sin, but it was never enough. 
We've been reading all about it in the book of Hebrews and men's Bible study. It was never enough. But Jesus came to be the ultimate lamb of sacrifice to take the sin of the whole world. He was born into this world to live for us and then to die for us. To give his perfect divine life to pay for all our sins, for all of us. To bring us out of the darkness and into the light, his light, the light of life. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He rose from the grave, overcoming the darkness, that we might have life. That's Christmas clarity. I hope that you can see it this morning. I'm going to ask you if you're clear, because you can be in Christ. God has come to us in his son. He's brought salvation to the world, and he couldn't make it any clearer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that we don't have to guess and speculate and be lost in endless opinions We thank you that you've given us the truth, the verifiable reality of your son, that we can put our faith in him and know life. What a Christmas blessing. Amen.